ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com This episode is sponsored by the new Colour Revolution exhibition at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, which looks at how scientific breakthroughs in the Victorian period enabled dramatic changes in the use of colour in fashion pieces, painting and other objects. You can hear one of the exhibition's curators, Charlotte Riberol, who is Professor in 19th century British literature at the Sorbonne, explaining more about the exhibition and some of the objects and ideas it explores in a special mini-episode in our podcast feed. You're listening to the LRB Podcast. I'm Malin Hay. My guest this week is Jonathan Coe, a novelist whose long list of award-winning novels includes What a Carve-Up, Middle England and The Rotters Club. He's written more than 30 pieces for the LRB on fiction, film and television. Thanks so much for joining me, Jonathan. Thank you. 30? Good good grief. I had no idea. (laughs) In 2013, Jonathan wrote a review for the paper of Boris Johnson's memoir, in which he presciently described the way that laughter, particularly laughter at politicians, has the potential to distract us from the real danger of their policies. Ten years later, after Johnson's three-year term as Prime Minister, Jonathan returns to the subject of British comedy in the latest issue of the paper, with a review of David Stubbs's Different Times, A History of British Comedy. So we'll return to the question of political satire a bit later in the podcast. But for now, Jonathan, let me start by asking you about comedy a bit more generally. Um, I think your interest in this subject goes back quite a long way. Um, You did a master's on, on theories of comedy. And um, at the beginning of the piece, you describe Freud's theory that comedy lifts our inhibitions by allowing us to make connections between seemingly dissociated ideas. Um, Do you think that's always a good thing? Um, What kind of release do jokes give us? Um, Well, they give us a very uh, pleasurable release. And if you believe that pleasure is a good thing, then jokes are a good thing, I guess. Um, Yeah, it was was back at... um, when I was an undergraduate, actually, at Cambridge, that I first started writing about uh, theories of comedy. And I always remember Freud's in jokes and their relation to the unconscious as being the one that leapt out at me and, and chiming most with how I instinctively felt about comedy. And he used this phrase, economy of psychic expenditure, so that uh, what he was saying was that a joke provides an incredibly... Uh, agile mental shortcut between two different ideas which might on paper be completely disconnected 
but you know, instead of going to them from A to Z, you find a way of just going from A to B, and there you are. And the and the mental energy that is saved uh, through experience like that joke is released uh, in the form of laughter. I guess we'll come on to talk about political satire a little bit later in the uh, in the podcast, but uh, the area in which I think the pleasurableness of comedy can be problematic, or as I've started to think it might be problematic, is precisely in the area of, of political comedy, where uh, if we start to take too much pleasure in laughing uh, at what's going on in the world around us, then we, uh, we lose our grasp on our anger and our need to do something about it. Um, but, uh, you know, on, on the whole, uh, jokes give pleasure, jokes are fun, so as far as I'm concerned, jokes are good. Do you, do you ever think that jokes are not pleasurable? Is there something <laughs> unpleasant about laughing ever? I don't find I don't find it. I remember reading an essay by Wyndham Lewis, I think it was, who who described laughter as a bark. And throughout the essay, instead of using the word laugh, he used the word bark. And when you see it like that, he felt there was something very, uh, very animal and very unattractive about it. And it is odd to uh, you know that that it provokes a, a physical reaction. But that's also one of the things I like about it. I remember a kind of revelatory moment for me was when I was on the tube many years ago and saw someone reading a copy of one of my favourite uh, novels, which is Tom Jones by Henry Fielding, and they were laughing. And I thought, that's so amazing that someone put some marks in ink on a piece of paper by candlelight 250 years ago, and now this is actually producing a physical reaction in another human being. And, uh, you know, I've, I, when I'm writing a novel myself, I always like the idea that People are going to have a physical reaction to it at some point, that there is going to be physical, actual laughter. Well, thinking about fielding actually takes me on to my next question, because I wanted to ask you about the idea of a British sense of humour. Um, the piece is a review of a book on the history of British comedy. Um, I think it's since the First World War that the book covers. Mm. Um, and you kind of grapple in the piece with this idea of a British sense of humour as something which and I'm quoting from your piece, everyone considers to be distinctive, but no one can define. Um, how much truth do you think there is to the idea that there is a British sense of humour? What do you think its characteristics might be? Well, to quote uh, Peter Cook, I think the word grapple is awfully well chosen here because I am grappling with it and still grappling with it. And um, it kind of uh, fascinates and frustrates me that no one can really put their finger on this because particularly when I'm abroad promoting my books, People are always from other countries are always talking to me about the British sense of humour, and I always want to know what they mean, and they they are never able to define it except for a vague idea that it's Monty Python and you know in some cases Benny Hill and this kind of thing. But naming comedians isn't exactly the same thing as defining it's not the same, what it. Not not the same thing as defining it. I actually don't think the British sense of humour is substantially different from the German sense of humour or the French sense of humour or whatever. I think it's the place it occupies in our society in our social relationships and our political relationships that makes the British sense of humour distinctive. Because I think humour is more important to us than it is maybe to people in other countries. Um, and, you know, one of – it's a common criticism you hear or I hear about people in public life, for instance, particularly politicians, when they say, oh, they have no sense of humour. I don't trust them because they have no sense of humour, which I might have subscribed to myself 10 years ago, but – now I, it's people who it's politicians who do have a sense of humour that I tend to uh, distrust, and there's also a, a characteristic 
self-mockery and self-deprecation, I think, about the English sense of humour, which is also a little bit treacherous and misleading because I think the other side of the coin of self-deprecation is kind of self-aggrandizement and you don't laugh at yourself, you don't run yourself down unless you feel very secure in yourself actually mm. and you feel you can, you can do that without really kind of inflicting much damage on yourself. It's a way of preempting other criticism. It's a way of it's a way of preempting other criticism. Yeah, you know, I I used to take it as a kind of uncomplicated compliment when people would say, "Oh, we love your British sense of humour." And now I stand back from it a bit and think, oh, "What do you actually mean by that? And what does that actually mean for us?" It also makes me wonder: Do you think this? Do you think it's possible to have a kind of supranational sense of humour? Is there a way that humour can actually be di- divorced from national identity? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, the more the more primal, the more physical jokes become, uh, the more international they become, I suppose. And I mean, to take the example of uh, Benny Hill, just because he springs to my mind, British people tend to be incredibly embarrassed about that because they associate him with sexism and with, uh, you know, outdated social and sexual mores and stuff, but he's loved around the world because he was a physical comedian and a lot of his comedy is slapstick and that translates in the same way that Mr. Bean does, in the same way that some of Monty Python does. And, you know, the same way that Stan Laurel does because let's not forget that uh, Stan Laurel came from uh, came from England. So, um, yeah, not, uh, not all kinds of humour are nationally specific by any means and maybe it's it's really our kind of very distinct strain of political satire which kicks off with the augustans i suppose in the in the early 18th century and then goes kind of mainstream in the 1960s on on film and television and record and so on uh, maybe that's what's distinctively uh, british or probably more accurately english let's talk a little bit more about some of these strains of british comedy because um when you look in such a teleological way at the changes in British comedy, which is what the book is trying to do and also what you do in your piece, um, and it's principally, I should say, TV and radio comedy most mostly, mm. um, you can't help but start thinking about some of the ways that comedy has changed over time or, or maybe also some of the continuities over time. Um, so speaking in a kind of broad way, um, how would you describe some of the changes that British comedy has undergone in the years since maybe the Second World War? Well, the David Stubbs book, Different Times, is very good on this. And that is the purpose of the book, really, to to map the ways in which changes in comedy direction and comedy fashion have mirrored changes in political direction and fashion. Uh, and I suppose, well, the first thing you notice is that apart from The Goon Show, which was a hugely uh, important and popular radio show in the 1950s, but is probably very much a niche interest now and is more considered more of historical importance than listened to for pleasure, although it is rerun on Radio 4 Extra and so on, I think. Um, but with the exception of that, comedy from the end of the war to about 1960 seems to belong to the age of deference. And although it's not necessarily timid politically it's kind of it's kind of neutral and respectful politically the goon show came out of spike milligan's experiences of uh, the second world war his shell shock and so on uh and it's a kind of manic surreal uh fantasy on the whole idea of 
authority, empire, British stiff upper lip and these sorts of things. I mean, it, it tears all that sort of thing apart, but by creating a fantasy world, really. Whereas when you have uh, Beyond the Fringe coming along in 1960, then you have four smart young men from Oxford and Cambridge who are very specifically targeting uh, British institutions and British establishments in institutions. Uh, I mean, the revolutionary thing, which is kind of hard to imagine being revolutionary now that uh, Peter Cook did with that show was to actually impersonate the prime minister uh, on stage and in fact impersonate him one night when he was when he was in the house himself and uh, he, he kind of upped the savagery of the impersonation that night just to kind of get a rise out of him. This is Macmillan. Yeah, this is Macmillan. And I always thought that Peter Cook was the first person to do that, but um, I've been reminded that actually there's a there was a sketch by Peter Sellers which predates this by two years, which came out on an LP, and I think is just called Party Political Speech. And it's more a piece of character-based comedy really than uh, than uh, hard-edged political satire, but it's... It's the, one of the early signs, I think, from 1958 that public respect for politicians is not going to be unconditional uh, from now on and they're up for having the, having the mickey taken out of them, basically. Let me say just this. If any part of what I am saying is challenged, then I am more than ready to meet such a challenge. For I have no doubt whatsoever that whatever I may have said in the past or what I am saying now is the exact, literal and absolute truth as to the state of the case. I put it to you that this is not the time for vague promises of better things to come. I was really struck listening to that by the... Um the amount of comedy that he pulls out of just the accent. Yes. You know, he has this like slightly exaggerated, <laughs> really posh English accent. Yeah. Um, and actually, this leads me to my next question, which is that I was thinking a little bit about a distinction that you identify in the history of British comedy over the 20th century. And this is something that you mentioned in your, um, in your piece about Boris Johnson as well, between comedians who, who are kind of attacking the establishment satirically from within the establishment versus comedians who maybe are coming from a slightly more working class perspective and perhaps also are just doing a different kind of comedy. A, a sort of, I think in the piece you mentioned a kind of gentle, um, people like Morecambe and Wise who are kind mm. of appealing to a slightly more gentle lifestyle version of British life. Um, do, you, do you think it's fair to call these two parallel strains in British comedy culture? I mean, I'm just thinking of things like Monty Python, Beyond the Fringe, and then later on something like Not the Nine O'Clock News, all of which were coming out of this kind of Oxbridge mill of, yeah. of comedians. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm really talking off the top of my head here, but um, certainly nearly all the sketch comedy that I can think of from the 1960s and early 70s, which is when British sketch comedy on television and radio really started to take off. Uh, yes, comes from not just a certain class, but a certain place, which is the which is the Oxbridge and the Cambridge footlights in in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you have uh, the sense there of of a bunch of uh, very clever, very well intentioned young men, one or two women, not not very many. It has to be said, uh, who are have somehow 
kind of started to see the institutions which they've been brought up to run really uh, as being a little bit absurd and a little bit in need of picking apart in a comic way and and re-examining. Uh, I think what's separate from that probably as you, as you imply is what was happening in sitcom on British television in the 1960s uh, which kind of more relates to what had been happening in theatre and in the film industry, I suppose, with the rise of um, John Osborne, The Angry Young Men, Woodfall Films, Tony Richardson, Albert Finney, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, etc., etc., where, where suddenly, either for opportunistic reasons or for or for kind of socially conscious and admirable, re admirable reasons, commissioners certainly suddenly started to realise that there were working class voices and provincial voices which could and should be heard. And programmes were commissioned along those lines. So you then have uh, Steptoe and Son, obviously, on the BBC and also uh, Till Death Us Do Part, uh, created by Johnny Spate, who was very much from a working class background and who rapidly discovered, I think, that he'd created a kind of monster because he created Alf Garnet, who was meant to be a kind of savage satire on the working class Tory who... Um, you know, was was more patriotic, more chauvinist, more sexist, more racist than than anybody else, and was voicing these uh, sentiments very, very uh, explicitly on on TV in a way which makes the shows kind of unrepeatable now. Uh, and found himself kind of taken up as a folk hero when what he was really meant to be was a you know a, a, almost a kind of demonic figure. I've chosen another clip which um, kind of expresses this tension because it's uh, uh, a very rare and little remembered sketch by Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, which was actually thought to be lost for a long time, but the audio has recently been recovered. And Cook and Moore are an interesting combination anyway because although Dudley Moore had been to Oxford, he was from a working class background. He was from, uh, from Dagenham in East London. And uh, they constantly played on the the upper-classness of Peter and the working-classness of Dudley in these sketches. And, and in this sketch, Dudley Moore plays a screenwriter who is very obviously Johnny Spate coming in to discuss an episode of uh, Till Death Is Too Part. And in his, his wonderfully drawling, patronising, patriarchal way, Peter Cook is playing the drama commissioner who is negotiating with him exactly how many swear words he can use in the piece. You're welcome to use it in life and in the script. The only thing that worries me about this script is the number of buns you have. <laughs> What's wrong with that? So I've got 30 buns in the script. 31. 31, give or take a bun. <laughs> Those buns are all there for a dramatic accumulative effect. Mm -hmm. You're not going to tell me that bums don't exist. No. I've got a bum, you've got a bum. We've all got a bum, Johnny. I would not pretend that bums don't exist. Right. But what I do ask you, Johnny, and I ask you this very seriously, <laughs> does an ordinary English family sitting at home early in the evening want to have a barrage of 31 bums <laughs> fired in their faces in the privacy of their own living room? Uh, I think not. I think not. I don't think we're ready yet to break through the bum barrier. <laughs> Who do you think is being satirised in that sketch? <laughs> Um, I, I think both both characters are being satirised. Um, uh, yeah, 
obviously the uh, the posh voiced BBC guy is is being satirised, but also, you know, from a from their own perspective, they're more uh, kind of privileged and establishment perspective. They're making fun of uh, of Johnny Spate and his. Uh, you know his his the sincerity of his belief that he's he's reflecting uh, real life by writing the way that he does. I find it really interesting that that sketch is about the is actually about the process of making TV comedy. Um, I think something that has maybe lurked in the background of our conversation so far, and you you did mention it, but um, I want to bring it out a little bit more, is that um, everybody that we've talked about so far has been male, and they've all been white as well. Um, and something that you mentioned in the piece, you talk about it, and that Stubbs also attends to quite scrupulously, I think, is the way that British comedy has has sort of traditionally been the preserve of white men, um, particularly maybe uh, middle class men, but but just men in general, yep. I would say. And um, just thinking about that that kind of idea of the of the BBC commissioner and this sort of institution around the production of comedy, um, I was wondering why do you think that is? Why do you think British comedy culture has historically been so exclusive of women and and people who aren't white? Um, well, I suppose I mean that sketch comes from 1970, I think, and uh, you know we're so we're at the point where that is maybe starting to change a little bit, but. Uh, you know, I think it's it's quite simply that most of the cultural institutions which enabled comedy, uh, most of the gatekeepers, most of the cultural gatekeepers uh, at that point, uh, not just in radio and television, but you know, in other areas of uh, the arts and film as well, were male, and uh, you know the the feminist revolution really. You know, if we see it as starting in the sixties, it, it had only just it had only just begun, and it was only, and its ripple effects had not really made themselves felt yet. So I think we have to wait another. You have isolated things. You you have writers like Carla Lane, uh, who is writing a sitcom all through the seventies called the Live of the Liver Birds, which is meant to be a reflection of the lives of two working class women from Liverpool, a kind of female counterpart to The Likely Lads from Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet. Uh, she then wrote a show called Butterflies towards the end of the 70s, which reflects a woman's uh, need uh, to escape the confines of her marriage, to have a, a kind of uh, platonic affair, which is not made fun of and not uh, criticised in the show. It's it's empathised with very much. Uh Apart from isolated examples like that, I think you really have to wait until the early 80s and the emergence of Victoria Wood to see a, a woman really stepping forward and, you know, just telling jokes from a female point of view from for almost uh, the first time on mainstream uh, TV and in big concert halls. Uh, and suddenly, thanks to her and thanks to French and Saunders as well, at the same time, women uh, are no longer the butt of the joke, which is what they've been all the way through up until this point. Even from, you know, the best writers like Galton and Simpson, uh, when you look at the way they wrote women in the early Hancock radio shows, it's it's pretty it's pretty unacceptable, uh, really. And, you know, it just, it just took a long time for that to... Uh, for women's voices to start filtering through after the 60s. So... Um how far do you think we've come? I mean, are we are we living in an age of kind of 
utopian equal <laughs> equal rights for comedy or or do you think there are further shifts that could be accomplished in the way that we sort of think about these things and and if so what would they be kind of what what new ways of thinking are required for us to sort of conceptualize comedy that is more inclusive um well again uh david stubbs writes about this a lot uh in his book and the ending of the book is kind of optimistic not in the sense that he's saying look the comedy landscape is transformed it's egalitarian it's completely inclusive it's completely anti-sexist and so on because there are still a lot of uh areas where that's where that's not the case i mean i, th I think we can take his book and look back on the journey that's been traveled from say 1960 to 2023 and we can have grounds for optimism um but uh you know still when you when you think of uh the comedians these days who are playing big concert halls who are dominating panel panel shows comedy panel shows on tv um most of them are white blokes, I would think. I mean, there are far more exceptions to that than there would have been 30 years ago, but it's 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 still kind of the case. Uh, a show that I really liked, which I think began on the BBC, uh, was The Mash Report from a few uh, years ago, and that has been cancelled now, I think, but it, it also finished up uh, on a different uh, channel, on a specialist comedy channel. So it was reaching you know an audience that was immeasurably smaller than uh, a show a mainstream bbc show would have reached in the 70s uh but it was giving a platform of sorts to people like rachel paris and nish kumar who were uh you know talking about well in the case of the clip we're about to play talking about misogyny institutionalized misogyny uh in a way uh which goes way beyond even the kind of gentle observational comedy of Victoria Wood and is talking about uh, a specifically female experience in a, in a way that, you know, would have been unimaginable a few decades earlier. That's the nicest thing you've said to me in five years. <laughs> That's true, Nish. And interestingly, my behaviour towards you is a good example of misogyny. No, it's not. No, it's not. Good spot, Nish. However, when Justice Secretary Dominic Raab was asked about misogyny last week, he said this. And misogyny is, of course, uh, absolutely wrong, whether it's uh, a man against a woman uh, or a woman against a man. That's right. Dominic Raab, a man who looks like the thickest member of your stag do, and the actual Justice Secretary, thinks that misogyny is just being a bit mean to someone. Maybe it's a man, maybe it's a woman, maybe it's a houseplant. <laughs> I read an interview recently with uh, a black female comedian called London Hughes, who whose career was in do doing incredibly well, uh, who had won awards at Edinburgh and so on. And she was explaining to the journalist her decision to leave the UK and go to America to pursue her comedy career because she felt the opportunities there were greater. And she cited the instance of two shows which was successful in parallel, really, which is Michaela Cole's sitcom Chewing Gum and Phoebe Waller-Bridge's uh, sitcom Fleabag. And Fleabag was the one that got all the attention and, and spawned all the imitations, really. And London Hughes' point was, well, why was that the case? Because, you know, the Michaela Cole was just as groundbreaking in many ways and it hasn't led to a... It hasn't led to the same um, new wave of 
black female-led comedy that that Fleabag did for its demographic. So thinking about panel shows actually (laughs) leads me on to my next question, which is to return to this question about satire, because the panel show seems to be actually a very peculiarly British institution. I think it's not really the type of culture that exists in America, for example. Um, And I think it's vaunted, at least, as an example of the way that Brits are able to do political satire in a kind of very mainstream way. But in fact, um, I think what I really want to ask you is whether you think that is true. Does that really work? Does the panel show really constitute meaningful satire? And in fact, are we living in an age that is immune to satire in some way? The first thing to say about the distinctive Britishness of the comedy panel show is that as in other areas of uh, politics and the economy, Britain is always a leader in finding cost-cutting measures and way of uh, kind of maximizing revenue and the great thing about panel shows is that they're not scripted so you don't have to you don't have to pay writers or you don't have to pay many writers in fact the birth of the of the comedy panel show really happened in the early 70s when I'm sorry I haven't a clue arrived uh, on the radio and that was you know that's been going for 50 years now and it's such an institution that people forget that it was ever a novelty but it was invented by Graham Garden basically because he'd been writing sketches for I'm sorry I'll read that again for years and years and he just was running out of ideas and wanted a way of filling up 30 minutes of radio comedy without having to write anything new. So he thought, well, get lots of funny, a few funny people around some desks and and let them improvise. And that's been the template ever since. Um, Of course, another long running institution is uh, Have I Got News For You, which is 30 years old now, I think, with the same uh, two panelists. And it's still a show I watch every week. It's kind of a schizophrenic show, I think, because a lot of it is not really satire. It's just joking about politics and making funny remarks, which are cued by political clips. Uh, but then sometimes, particularly when Ian Hislop is uh, is allowed free reign, then it does begin to dig a little bit deeper. And, uh, you know, in that first piece I wrote for the LRB about Boris Johnson 10 years ago, I look at Johnson's very first appearance on the show where he was actually being given quite a hard time, a surprisingly hard time, and he wasn't enjoying it at all. And then uh, people started uh, telling some jokes, mood in the audience relaxed, people started laughing. Johnson, you can see on his face, relaxes into the humour, realises that he can ride that kind of wave. And uh, from that point on, in his subsequent guest appearances, the show gave him a much uh, easier ride, I think, and and in some ways played a part in, in enabling his rise, certainly popularized him. So um, we tend to congratulate ourselves on our tradition of political comedy. We we tend to think the implication at the back of my mind of our minds is that it gives us a kind of integrity, a kind of self-critical edge, which maybe other countries don't have. And yet uh, often it's just, you know, a way of deflecting criticism and turning it into, in Freudian terms, you know, that uh, pleasurable release of laughter through economy of psychic expenditure. Continuing with the theme of the kind of nasty side of British comedy or some of the more dark aspects of, of what it seems to have enabled in British life, um, 
the sort of recent revelations about Russell Brand's sex offences, I think, have caused very interesting reckoning among the British media. And obviously, this comes mostly in the form of hand-wringing journalism, but um, <laughs> presumably a similar conversation is happening within the comedy world. This idea of a kind of a culture, especially in the 2000s, which was which was enabling of that kind of offensiveness and you actually mention in the piece um the kind of the Saxgate scandal where Russell Brand and Jonathan Ross rang up Andrew Sachs and, and made co- lewd comments about his granddaughter um do you think it's true to say that the, the 2000s were the kind of peak of nastiness in British comedy have we moved away from that now um just speaking personally it's it's a little difficult for me to say because I was uh, I was busy bringing up uh, my young daughters in the in the two in the noughties and wasn't what wasn't actually watching much comedy on television at that time, but the the Saxgate episode is very interesting. I think, particularly as you say, in the light of what's uh, been alleged about Russell Brand since. And what's kind of fascinating about it is that their target, well, two things: the target was actually Andrew Sachs's granddaughter, uh, who, when you look back at the way the thing was reported and written about. Uh, at the time, nobody really thought about or spoke about or wrote about the impact this was having on her. I think it had quite a devastating impact, actually, from everything I read subsequently. But all the focus of sympathy was on Andrew Sachs because, in a way, it was like two eras of comedy in collision. So the phrase I use in the piece to describe 1970s comedy is consensus comedy because this this was the last decade, really, of the post-war consensus when we felt that politically Britain basically agreed on the direction things were going in. And TV shows like Morecambe Wise, like Mike Yarwood, uh, were getting enormous viewing figures and Faulty Towers was another one of them. So Andrew Sachs in many people's minds is associated with that very uh, that very cuddly, that very consensual uh, era of British comedy. In spite of the fact that his portrayal can be seen as quite a shocking racist stereotype in some ways, um, and then, you know, in collision with that, when Ross and Brand phoned him up, you have, yeah, the comedy of uh, of Naughty's cruelty, I suppose, and victim comedy. Uh, so I think that's what makes it a particularly um, uncomfortable moment and why it still resonates now and why, um, you know, the, the ripple effects that had on... Uh, the culture at the BBC, who became much more nervous in the wake of that, not just about their comedy output, but their output generally and how it was going to be um, criticised by people like the Daily Mail and so on. Uh, you know, I think the ripple effects of that were quite uh, profound and long-lasting. Well, that actually leads quite nicely into my final question, um, which sort of also returns to this Freudian question about what um, what comedy does to our, our kind of subconscious. Um, I'm just wondering if you think, does satire... Does does true satire always have to have meanness in it? Does it always have to be angry on some level? I think if it's really going to have an impact, it has to be disturbing. It has to cause some kind of shift in the consciousness and the worldview of the reader or the viewer or the listener, which is probably why Chris Morris is, is the most effective satirist of the last 20 or 30 years, I suppose. Um. What I would say about satire is it doesn't have to be funny. I think this is the mistake that, that people often make. We've we've allowed satire and political comedy to become synonymous terms in in this country, and I don't think I don't think they are. A lot of political comedy uh, is very 
agreeable, very amusing, very pleasurable, uh, but it's not really satirical, I don't think, because it's just it's just a kind of amused reaction to current events. I mean, the greatest satire in the language for me is Gulliver's Travels and specifically book four of Gulliver's Travels. And there's not many laughs in the Huynims and the uh, and the Yahoos, but it's it's a very very uh, disturbing piece of writing. Uh, not cruel, not cruel to the reader, and not uh, and very compassionate in a way in its in its view of human nature ultimately, but disturbing definitely. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can find Jonathan Coe's piece about British comedy in the latest issue of the LRB and online at lrb.co.uk. Jonathan's latest novel, Bourneville, was published by Penguin in 2022. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne. Now, before I go, those of you among us who don't skip over podcast intros may have noticed a new version of our theme music at the beginning of this episode, composed by Kieran Brunt. But for fans of what we had before, don't worry, we have an extra treat for you. Kieran has composed a special extended version of it, which we're going to end the episode with now. I hope you enjoy it. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Listener.